Open our Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Luke. We're studying through the Gospel of Luke. We're doing it in a thematic way, taking each episode as it comes. We find ourselves in chapter 4 this morning. We're going to look at verses 1 through 13, where Jesus Christ is tempted in the wilderness by the devil. Familiar to most, we would hope that our familiarity would only heighten our enthusiasm and excitement for the Lord to share new things with us. And so Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13, always like to read the text so that we know what we're talking about and where we're headed. Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for 40 days by the devil. And in those days he ate nothing, and afterward, when they had ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. But Jesus answered him, saying, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, All this authority I will give you and their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all this will be yours. And Jesus answered and said to him, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Then he brought him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you to keep you. And in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It has been said, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Now when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Father, bless this word to our hearing in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus was and is God, but that is not how He overcame Satan. He used no supernatural abilities, called upon no mighty angels, performed no amazing miracles. The story is carefully told in such a way that leaves no doubt Jesus faced His adversary not as God, but as a man depending upon God. It makes his victory over Satan all the more stunning. How can a man without the physical sustenance of food or the emotional support of family or friends defeat the devil? Luke was careful to mention the Holy Spirit in his preface to the story. In verse 1, he says, Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Jesus was led by the Spirit. And he was filled with the Spirit. His relationship with the Holy Spirit is what enabled and empowered him as a man to resist and defeat his enemy. You and I are men and women who can be led by and filled with the Spirit. It follows that you and I are men and women who can therefore resist our enemy and defeat him. Our text emphasizes these two relationships with the Holy Spirit, and then it expands on them. We'll organize our thoughts around two points. Number one, you survive and thrive in the world by being led by the Spirit. And number two, you survive and thrive in the world by being filled with the Spirit. Let's look first of all in verses one and two where you learn that you survive and thrive in the world by being led by the Spirit. 
Make no mistake about it, you are in the wilderness. The world in which you live is not the way God created it, certainly not the way he intended it. It is fallen, and it is under the influence of Satan. In the Scripture, Satan is called the prince of this world. He is called the prince of the power of the air. Paul the Apostle plainly says that he is the God of this world. As Hal Lindsey used to say, the devil is alive and well and living on planet earth. And so this is a reality for you and I. The world is, in a sense, a very real spiritual sense, a wilderness that is influenced by and to a certain degree under the control of the devil. Now, I will mention more than once that Jesus was acting not as God, but as a man depending upon God. He was and is your example of how to not only survive, but to thrive in the wilderness. This is not the first time we have encountered the Holy Spirit in Luke's description of Jesus. Luke has a tremendous, we would say, theology of God the Holy Spirit if you consider that he wrote the Gospel of Luke and then the book of Acts, which is sometimes called the Acts of the Holy Spirit, working through the lives of the disciples. And so Luke, when he mentions the Spirit, we should take notice. In chapter 1, we learn that Jesus was to be born of Mary by the activity of the Holy Spirit. Then in chapter 3, Jesus came to be baptized, and you were told that the Holy Spirit came upon him. In a few more verses, in verse 18 of chapter 4, you're going to see the Holy Spirit come upon Jesus again. So far in Luke's gospel, we've seen Jesus born of the Spirit filled with the Spirit, led by the Spirit, and have the Holy Spirit come upon him. Now, that should excite you because those can be true of any Christian. In the third chapter of John, Jesus speaks of believers being born of the Spirit. In the famous passage where he's talking to Nicodemus at night, Nick at night we call it in theological services, when he's talking to Nicodemus, at night, he says, you must be born again. He says plainly, you must be born of the Spirit. And so when we receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we are born of the Spirit of God. Our spirit comes to life and the Holy Spirit comes to live within us. Then in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, you are commanded by the Apostle Paul to be filled with the Spirit. Romans chapter 8, verse 14, Paul says, quote, As many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Indicating that all children of God, all the sons and daughters of God, all believers can be led by God's Spirit. And then the book of Acts recounts multiple times that the Holy Spirit came upon the believers as they asked for boldness to serve the Lord, not just in the upper room on the day of Pentecost, but again and again and again, they would pray and the Spirit would come upon them. Our text said Jesus was filled with the Spirit and led by the Spirit, and so those are the two relationships we want to concentrate on this morning. The Spirit's filling is described in verses 3 through 13. Let's look first at the Spirit's leading as it is described in verses 1 and 2. Verse 1 again, Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for 40 days by the devil. And in those days he ate nothing. And afterward, when they had ended, he was hungry. Into the wilderness can be translated in the wilderness. Jesus was not just led out there and left. 
He was led out there and he was led all the while he was out there. The point that Luke is making is that Jesus always had and followed the leading of the Holy Spirit. And so the very first thing we can be confident about is that the leading of the Holy Spirit is something always available to us. Jesus was led in the wilderness, it says, to be tempted for 40 days by the devil. You can translate the word for tempted as tested. And that is really what this was. It was a test. Why put Jesus to the test? Well, for one thing, Jesus needed to be tempted and tested in all points like we are in order to be our sympathetic Savior, or as the book of Hebrews later presents Him, our sympathetic high priest. And so you want to know that you can come to Jesus and that He can relate to you. He understands what it is to be a man, to be a human being, tested and tempted. And then for another thing, the temptation of Jesus exposed once and for all the tactics of the devil in tempting mankind. We're going to talk more about this under our second point in just a moment. Then there was also a great deal of biblical symbolism going on. First of all, in the beauty and bounty of the Garden of Eden, while fully satisfied and with total support, Adam had succumbed to the devil. Adam and Eve, as we'll see, faced the very same kinds of temptation but failed. Because they represented the human race, all of us now share in their sin. Jesus, not in a beautiful garden, one author called it anti-Eden, in the bleakness and barrenness of the wilderness with no support other than God the Holy Spirit, overcame the devil. He too represented us and now we share the spoils of his victory over the devil. And then secondly, there is symbolism involving the nation of Israel. Jesus, we read, was tempted for 40 days. It is significant that Israel failed her testing at the borders of the promised land and was relegated to wandering in that same wilderness for 40 years. Jesus was reclaiming the promised land for the Jews as their king. Now, the first thing we learned about being led by the Spirit is that He is always available to lead us. The second thing we learn is that He leads us in and to places of testing. You need to understand that God is a show-off. He loves to show off His people. I mean this in the greatest possible way, and it's true. The test is not designed to see you fail, but to show you off. In the first chapters of the book of Job, Satan has to present himself to God in heaven. And what does God do? God says, hey, devil, have you considered my servant Job? And he shows off Job. He says, man, I'm so, I'm, I'm so proud of Job in a fatherly sense. Have you checked him out lately? And the devil thinks that he can get Job to curse God or at least fall away from God and not follow him. And so God says, oh, no, I, I'm going to show him off. And so, devil, you can do some things. Here are some boundaries. And he sets some boundaries that we don't really particularly care for. They're beyond the boundaries we would have set. Job goes through some very difficult and serious times. But in the end, you know the story. When it was over, God had shown off Job to the devil to all the angels, both fallen and faithful, 
and to every succeeding generation of men so that we can talk about him even here this morning. God is a show-off. And if you're being tested, it is to show you off. He can lead you in and through the testing. How does he do it? How are you led? What are the steps? Well, I need to tell you that that is a subject that you will study for your entire life. Your life is really a laboratory in which you learn daily about the leading of the Holy Spirit. There, there is no quick, easy answer, no you know, three-step or 12-step program for how to be led by the Holy Spirit. The best that I can do is give you a few quick biblical principles. The great teaching on the leading of the Holy Spirit is in Romans chapter 8. The Apostle Paul uses the phrase, led by the Spirit. We quoted it earlier, chapter 8, verse 14, as many as are led by the Spirit. And so if you go to Romans 8, you don't have to right now, I'll just give you the principles, three things that he does draw out in that chapter. First of all, he says, you are led by the Spirit as you partake of your privileges as a believer. What he does is he says that you are adopted by God into his family. And the idea is that like any adopted child, you enter into the privileges of that family as a full member of that family. And so uh, we have the privileges of a son or daughter of God. All spiritual blessings in heavenly places are available to us all the time, every day. Then Paul said that you are led by God through His providence. He says it in that magnificent verse that all of us check every morning. All things are working together for good to them that love the Lord and are the called according to His purpose. That's God's providence. Whatever is happening in your life, God is sovereign over it. And even if it is bad, it doesn't say all things are good. It says all things are working together for the good. And so even the bad things, the wrong things, the hurtful things, the painful things, the things of loss and suffering, God is able through His providence to work them together for your good. As you learn to accept God's oversight and then rest in His loving care, you find that the Holy Spirit is leading you. And then finally, Paul says, you are led by God through His predestination. Now, how sad that this word predestination, which is in the Bible, which is a biblical word, has taken on so much baggage. You know what baggage is? You ever try and get through an airline terminal with all your baggage, you know? and you're dragging stuff behind you, and you're, I don't need this, and I don't need that, you know, forget that. And, and so this term, predestination, it freaks people out. Here's what it means in Romans chapter 8 at least. Paul says you are predestined to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. Now, what does that mean? It means that once you become a Christian, once you receive Christ as your Savior, God has predetermined or predestined that the work He began in you, He will complete. He will make you more like Jesus. That's, if you're a Christian, that's what's going on in your life. God is bringing things into your life, arranging things in your life, reordering your life so that you can become more like His Son, Jesus Christ, every day in the wilderness of this world. And so, if you want to be led by the Spirit, you should accept God's providences as His predestined means to make you more like Jesus. You accept them and then take advantage of every spiritual privilege that belongs to you as a child of God, praying and 
uh, seeking God in His Word and fellowshipping with other saints. A lot of times people don't feel like they're being led by the Spirit. They think that you've been led into the wilderness and then left out there. That is the typical experience of the Christian. Yes, God led me here, and then He abandoned me in this wilderness. I'm completely on my own. What, you're re- what is really happening is that you're in a testing in the wilderness. You don't like it. You don't want to be there. You want God to deliver you out of it, from it, without going through it. And God says, I've been working for thousands of years to get you right here so that what? You could avail yourself of the privileges of a child of God and be predestined into the image of my son, Jesus Christ. Gene, didn't you pray seven years ago that you wanted to be more like Jesus? Yeah, I think so, but I didn't. I was stupid then. (laughs) Doesn't matter. I'm hearing those prayers, and Jesus was led out into the wilderness, and I led him out there while he was there, and you're in a wilderness, and I'm going to lead you there too. As soon as you accept the situation that you're in, then you will begin to experience more of the leading of God the Holy Spirit. He can't lead you if you're trying to leave all the time. You understand what I'm saying? Now, we left Jesus hungry. The devil had been continuously attacking the Lord, it says, not just at the end of the 40 days. This was going on the whole time. But now it was most intensely felt. When your hunger returns after 40 days of fasting, I'm told that you must eat or you will die. Your body gets... I'm not a big... I've never fasted for 40 days. I'll just confess that to you right now. I couldn't go that long without pasta. I just couldn't do it. But I'm told by medical people that when you start a fast, there's a period when you're hungry, and then your hunger goes away. And then for a long time, you're not hungry. From maybe like day 5 to day 39, you're not hungry at all if you just get into a fast. I always thought these people on Survivor ought to just not eat after five days, and they'd be fine. But instead, they, you know, they're like gluttons, you know. They're wanting to have all kinds of fish and rice and stuff. Just fast. Anyway, you're fasting. At the end of 39 days, on the 40th day, right around there, your body gets hungry. It says, hey, I'm hungry. And if you don't eat, you're going to die. Your body's going to eat itself, and you're going to die. And that's just the way it is. And so this is the point that Jesus was at. It's a very serious physical condition he finds himself in. And so in verse 3 through 13, you survive and thrive in the world by being filled with the Spirit. Luke mentioned Jesus was filled with the Spirit in verse 1. I suggest to you that these remaining verses explain what it means to be filled. You are filled with the Spirit to the extent you are filled with God's Word. I say that for at least two reasons. First of all, what does Jesus do here? He quotes the Word of God. Luke says, Jesus in the wilderness, filled with the Spirit. And then what does a man filled with the Spirit look like? What does he do? He is filled with the Word of God. And then second, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul told believers to be filled with the Spirit. He does it in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. There is a parallel passage in the book of Colossians, chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, where he's saying the same kinds of things 
Except he doesn't say be filled with the Spirit. He says be filled with the Word of God. Let the Word of God dwell in you richly. And so in Paul's way of thinking, being filled with the Spirit was the same thing as being filled with the Word and vice versa. Now let's take a time out. Those of you who are more charismatic and Pentecostal and think I've sold out to some conservative theology, we're going to talk about Another experience with the Holy Spirit next week, Lord willing, that is the Spirit coming upon Jesus. When he leaves the wilderness and goes into the synagogue, you'll see the Spirit come upon him for the second time. And this is the experience of of seeking after God for more and more of his power in your life as you serve him. And so having said that, to be filled with the Spirit is to be filled with the Word of God. Jesus did not suddenly become filled with the Spirit in the wilderness. It wasn't a Pentecostal experience at all where one minute he was seeking God and the next minute the Holy Spirit blew into his life. He was already filled with the Spirit before he was led out into the wilderness. He was already filled with the Word of God. He was ready for these things. If you want to be Spirit-filled, then feed yourself a steady diet of the Word of God. When you do, you will find yourself coming under the Spirit's control because guess what? The author of the Word of God is the Spirit of God. When the Word of God is received into the believer's life, the Spirit takes that truth and gives you guidance and direction. The three temptations follow a pattern that repeats itself throughout the Scripture. First of all, the Apostle John warned believers to guard against three things, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, he says, that's what's in the world. That's what's in the wilderness of this world. Lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. In the Garden of Eden, when Satan tempted Eve, you read, first of all, she saw the tree was good for food. This would be in the category of the lust of the flesh. She wanted to eat it and satisfy her fleshly appetite for food. And then it says that it was pleasant to the eyes, so it was a good-looking fruit. Are there ugly fruit? What would you consider an ugly fruit? There's some ugly fruit. (laughs) Pleasant to the eyes, so it wasn't a kiwi. Probably a pomegranate is my guess. But anyway, this would be the lust of the eyes. It was pleasant to look upon and It says it was to make one wise. The devil had told her it would make her be like God. And so this is an appeal to the pride of life. Jesus was tempted the very same way. The temptation to make bread was to fulfill the lust of his flesh. The temptation to bow down and worship came after he was shown the kingdoms of this world, fulfilling the lust of of the eyes. And the temptation to throw himself off the pinnacle of the temple, a temptation to the pride of life. So here we have the devil's playbook, if you want a sports analogy. Wouldn't it be great if you're playing football and you had the enemy's playbook, your, your opponent's playbook, and you knew their game plan and every play they were going to run? you would have your defense down. Sweep left, sweep right, pass down the middle. You'd be there. You'd have 12 guys in every, <laughs> everywhere they were going to be. Now, some, some teams, you do know what they're going to do, but they execute so well, it's still difficult to stop them. And so just knowing the devil's playbook isn't enough. We also need to defend against it. But having said that, 
knowing that he is going to come after you with some lust of your flesh or some lust of your eyes or with some appeal to your pride is a great help to defending against him and resisting him. And if you think back on some of the things that you have fallen into over the years, some of the sins that have tripped you up, they will fit into one of these categories. There, there is no other thing going on in the world other than these three. And so we're, we have a great advantage here in knowing what the devil's going to do. And so, so when I'm faced with something and, and there's that struggle within me, I can think, well, is this appealing to the lust of my flesh? Is there a spiritual principle that I ought to prefer to this lust of my flesh? Is this an appeal through the lust of my eyes? Should I just turn away from it? Or to the pride of life? Is this welling up pride in me? And those things will help you greatly. Now, in verse 3, the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. But Jesus answered him, saying, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Now, the word translated if is in a verb tense that means since. Since you are the Son of God, both the devil and Jesus knew he was the unique Son of God, God in human flesh. Jesus could have made bread out of the stone. Actually, he could have made bread out of nothing. It was nothing for him to come up with a loaf of sourdough out there or pumpernickel rye, or whatever it was on his heart. I mean, he was God. He spoke the worlds into existence. A little loaf of bread was nothing to him. His refusal was to use his power on his own. He was being led by the Spirit, and as far as he could tell, God had not told him to make bread or to even eat. And remember, he's hungry to the point of starvation, and he's going to die, but he's waiting upon the Lord. He says, I'm not going to use my power as the Son of God. I'm not going to dip into that. I am a man waiting to hear from God. Now, the first thing that we learn from that is that the spiritual is more real and powerful than the material. In this case, the Word of God is more necessary even than our food. And then second thing, Jesus would only do what He was led to do. He would not act on His own. We must believe that the spiritual is more important than the material and then follow the leading of God in our lives, never acting on our own apart from God's will as revealed through His Word. In all three temptations, Jesus quoted only from a very small section of Deuteronomy between chapters 6 and 8. Why is that? Well, here's at least one reason. In Deuteronomy, the Jews were preparing to enter the promised land after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness were over. They were instructed how to live in the land under God's authority. Now, here was Jesus, 40 days in the desert. He was going to offer them the kingdom of God on the earth. He was showing them by his humble obedience and refusal to use his divine power how to live under God's authority in God's kingdom on earth. Verse 5, Then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, All this authority I will give you and their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. And Jesus answered and said to him, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. 
first thing to notice is that Jesus did not dispute Satan's claim to the earth. The devil was handed a limited authority and rulership over the earth when Adam and Eve sinned. God had given them dominion over the earth, and they decided to bow down, really, to Satan, to trust him, to take his leading. And they established a spiritual principle that works every time. Whoever you uh, obey, that is the person that you serve. And, and so they obeyed the devil in a sense by going for his temptation, and they were now serving him. And the devil moved in, took up residence in a sense, and the world is just not as it ought to be. God is in sovereign, ultimate control, don't get me wrong. But certainly the devil is alive and well on planet earth doing his best, or his worst, I should say. Now, somewhere outside of linear time, Jesus saw all the kingdoms of the world. His mission was to reclaim for mankind what Adam had forfeited, and so Satan just offered it to him. He said, all you have to do is worship me, and it can all be yours. The Father had determined that Jesus would gain the kingdoms of the world by dying on the cross, and so Satan was presenting a very attractive shortcut. Jesus would have nothing to do with it. Worshiping God on the cross was infinitely to be preferred to even a split second of submitting to the devil. God's kingdom is of a very different character in nature than the kingdoms of this world anyway. The methods and manner of the world cannot be adopted as shortcuts to obtain something spiritual. And so, sure, you know, there's the splendor and glory of Egypt and Medo-Persia and Babylon and, and uh, you know, Rome and all of these kingdoms in their succession. Uh, Jesus saw modern kingdoms as well, the modern world, and there's a certain glory and splendor to that. But it's all transitory. I mean, it's interesting to see all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. If you're really on your thinking, you've got your thinking cap out and you think, hey, well, what happened to those? They're all gone. They last for a while and then they fade away, another kingdom, another kingdom, another kingdom. The only real kingdom is the kingdom of God the spiritual kingdom that God wants to develop and ultimately the kingdom of God that will exist on the earth and forever. And, and so Jesus says that, you know, we need to understand the kingdom of God and it has nothing to do with the world of men. And this is why we're always talking about not borrowing methods from the world to accomplish spiritual purposes. You, you, the end never justifies the means. You can't do what the world is doing, bring it into the church, and hope to accomplish anything with it. The temporary split-second pleasures of this world cannot ever be compared to your future glory in heaven. Worshiping the devil just for a split second, what could that hurt? And so often that's how we are led into sin. What could this hurt? It, it, it's not going to last that long. It's not that much of a diversion. It, those kinds of things. We need to keep our eyes on God's kingdom. Then in verse 9, then he brought him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are, since you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you. And it is written in their hands, they shall bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, it has been said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. The idea here is that the people below would witness this miracle and then be inspired to immediately receive Jesus as their Messiah. Hey, who's that up there 450 feet above us on the pinnacle of the temple? Is it a bird? Is it a plane? 
No, it's super Messiah. Here he comes hurtling to the earth. And then just at the last second, these angels swoop under him and grab him and deliver him to the crowd. All hail the conquering Messiah. That was the idea. Now, Satan quoted Scripture. This is a mind-bending, mind-blowing concept to me. More accurately, he misquoted Scripture. His words are from Psalm chapter 2, which is a messianic psalm. So he's pretty smart. But he leaves out a phrase. It's the phrase, in all thy ways, meaning that you must be in the will of God to claim this promise. A misquoted promise is always a presumption. This is the real underpinnings of what we call the health and wealth movement today misquoted promises that become presumptions. God, you know, only wants you healthy all the time. He only wants you wealthy all the time. Okay? That's a presumption. Can't be proven in Scripture. Jesus answered by comparing Scripture with Scripture to discern the will of God, and that's what we must do. We must always balance out the Word of God. You've heard people say that you can prove anything from Scripture, but that's not really true. Sure, if you ignore other portions or leave out certain key sections, then yes, you can come up with all kinds of weird and wild ideas. In the Gospel of Mark, there's a promise that if you're a missionary doing the Lord's work, you might be bitten by a poisonous snake and not die. And then you see in the book of Acts... Paul the Apostle, he's shipwrecked on the island of Malta, and he's helping build the fire, and he reaches for a stick of wood, and instead there's a viper in there, and it jumps out at him, and it grabs onto him, and he shakes it off, and then everybody's watching him to see if he's going to puff up and die because it was a poisonous snake, and no harm came to him. So then other people get a hold of this, and they say, hey, let's have a snake ceremony. Let's go out and find some poisonous snakes and put them in a bag, and then we'll prove your faith by putting your hand in the bag. All right, let's not and say we did. I mean, that's crazy stuff. That's not, that's a presumption. That's turning a promise into a presumption. And, and you should be smart enough to know that. Some people fall for that. And I've seen some of these on television, and the people, you know, they, some of them die. Some of them get really sick. But uh, it's just stupid. Hey, Tuesday night, baptism, Wednesday night, snake service. Come on out, you know. <laughs> Crazy. Or we could have the baptism. We could put like poisonous snakes in the baptismal. Kind of like an Indiana Jones thing, you know, and stuff. If you survive your baptism, you're a real Christian. Of course, I'd have anti-venom suits and stuff, you know. It's insane the things that people say about the Word of God. Now, one lesson for us here is to remember that the sensational and the spectacular are not necessarily God's will. God can heal you. God can deliver you. God can do the miracle. D does anyone doubt? I mean, really, seriously, does anyone doubt that God uh, can heal you if He wants to or that He can accomplish a miracle? Not really. But he sometimes wants to do something that's more profound. Sometimes he wants to change you from glory to glory and show others the power of trusting in him. I guess what I'm saying is this. The miracle would be easy. The healing would be nothing for God. But you're giving him glory and praise and revealing his grace. That's something more difficult. 
that's something that requires a little bit more. And so God, remember, designs these testings, not to deliver you out of them, but to deliver you through them. The sensational really doesn't do it for people. Jesus rose from the dead. It is one of the most defendable, provable facts of history. No one that rejects Christ rejects Him because the resurrection isn't real. They have their own heart issues to deal with. I was thinking about how ridiculous the theory of evolution was the other day. Even scientists think it's ridiculous now, but they still won't turn and accept that there was a creator. They just don't know what was going on. The human heart, it's, a, it's an interesting thing, and God is working in yours. And so we pray for God to heal you. We'll anoint you with oil, and we'll call upon the name of the Lord, and He sometimes chooses to heal. But more often than not, He chooses not to because there's a more important work that He has to do a work in your heart and in your life. And it's not always, you know, to accomplish something else, you know, that, yeah, this happened so that this foundation would be started or for, or for this per- It's really just between you and God. You are what God is after. He doesn't want you to build anything or to, to do anything. You might. That, that's fine. I'm not getting down on that. But God loves you. And He wants to show you His presence and power in the midst of your circumstances. And we don't experience it because we don't want to be there. We just don't. It's a big thing for Paul the Apostle to say, I've learned in whatever situation I'm in to be content. I can abound. I can be abased. I accept everything God brings into my life. That's the place we need to be. Now the devil had ended every temptation. He departed from him until an opportune time. Every temptation, every type of temptation, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Satan exhausted his playbook. He threw everything at Jesus. Jesus didn't go for it, and so he left him to regroup. He'd been set back, but he would return again and again until finally he had Jesus on the cross. Hallelujah. Of course, the devil wouldn't say hallelujah, but... What would the devil say? I don't want to say what he would say, but anyway, I have an idea, but I can't say it. Anyway, uh, there he had Jesus on the cross. He was going to kill the Son of God. There's even indications in the Scripture that the demons were rejoicing around the cross. What an idiot. What a jerk. He didn't see it. I mean, with all of his super intelligence, he couldn't figure out what God was talking about. And then three days later, Jesus Christ is alive forevermore, and it's like, oh, how did he do that? And Satan is defeated finally and fully forever at the cross. Oh, well, what's he doing now? Well, Jesus is in heaven. He hasn't taken control of the earth yet. Satan is a squatter. He's got squatter's rights on the earth. But you get to the book of the Revelation, and finally Jesus is going to stand up. He's going to come forward. The Lamb of God that was slain before the foundation of the world He's going to take out of his Father's hand a scroll that is the title deed to the earth. He's going to open it up, seal by seal, trumpet by trumpet, bowl by bowl, 
until Revelation says the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. In the middle of that time, the devil is finally thrown out of the air, hits the ground running, tries to destroy the people of God, tries to destroy the earth, but Jesus Christ comes back and he ends it all. That's what's going on. In the meantime, you're in a wilderness, and some of you are deep into it but you have the leading of God and you can be filled with God. It was as a man that Jesus resisted and defeated temptation. He was born of the Spirit, filled with the Spirit, led by the Spirit, and he experienced the Holy Spirit coming upon him. All of these experiences are available to any man or woman. They're available to you in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Let's pray this morning. Lord, I pray that we would understand the very simple truths of this section of Scripture. First of all, that you resisted and defeated the devil as a man, as a man depending upon God, as a man who had been born of the Spirit, filled with the Spirit, led by the Spirit, who had the Holy Spirit upon him, that we would once and for all recognize that and understand that that's all that we need Not that we can be perfect, Lord, but that we would have the hope of the success of resistance. We thank you for that. And then, Lord, beyond that, as we close this morning, as we just spending time meditating here upon what we've just heard, that we would review perhaps those four aspects that we're talking about in in terms of the Holy Spirit and see how it is that we're doing in those areas. First of all, Lord, the Bible says that we must be born of the Spirit. And so I pray for each and every one of us here this morning that we would search ourselves to know if we've ever been born of God, born again. If we've accepted Christ as our personal Lord and Savior, given our hearts to Jesus. That we can honestly say that we're trusting in Christ alone for salvation, not in any works of personal righteousness, not in any good works, not in a religion, not in anything other than we know that Jesus died for us as sinners, rose from the dead. And so, Lord, just in these closing moments, may your Spirit reveal to hearts whether or not they have been born of God. And if you're here this morning and you've never received Christ as your Savior, then you're here by God's divine appointment, by His invitation to hear these words. Unless you're perfect, you can't go to heaven. You can never be perfect, but you can be declared perfect by trusting Jesus Christ as your Savior. And so as we close, I want to give an opportunity. There may be one or two people, there usually are in every crowd, who are not Christians, not born again, haven't given their lives to the Lord. I want to give you the opportunity to think about that and to respond to the Word of God. The Bible says the Word is alive and that it's powerful, that it is the power of God unto salvation. You need to be saved. You're lost without Jesus, without hope, without Jesus. And so let me ask you, as we close our service this morning, do you want to know Jesus as your Savior? If you do, just raise your hand so that we can acknowledge it and then pray for you. Do you want Jesus? You want to be set free from sin and death? 
have no guilt for anything you've ever done, be forgiven your sins. Does that describe you? Raise your hand so that we can pray for you. Anyone at all. I pray that the Holy Spirit would continue to work in your hearts. Maybe you're a Christian. Undoubtedly, most of us have been born again, born of the Spirit. Concentrate this morning on thinking about being filled with the Spirit of God. It's a command. Be being filled with the Spirit and make a commitment to the Lord to get into His Word. Not as a duty, but as a delight. Not as a drudgery, but as your great desire. To desire God's Word with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. All of us need to be led by the Spirit of God. Maybe you're in a situation or a circumstance that you'd like to be out of, to delivered from, but instead God is taking you through it. Have the courage this morning to accept your circumstances and to trust the Lord for them. Even now as we pray, just say, Lord, I just trust you. I, I want out, but I'd rather go through it with you than fight against you. And it will have a profound effect on your life. All of us need the Spirit to come upon us. We'll talk more about it as time goes on, but it's simply just asking for more of God in our life. Luke in chapter 11 will talk about it at length. He'll say, ask and seek and knock and go on doing that. And he's talking to Christians about just wanting more of God in their life. And so, would to God that all of us believers would want more of God in our life. Ask the Lord to fill you with more of His presence. We pray these things this morning in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Let's stand together. We have a final chorus to sing. And as we do, some of the guys that are deacons here at our fellowship, they're going to come down as we do each week. And they're here to pray with you, to pray for you. Take advantage of that. There are times in your life when you make a point of contact with God. He brought to life something in your heart and you want to pray it in and know that it belongs to you. Maybe you'd like the Holy Spirit to come upon you in a fresh way. That can happen just as you walk in faith. But oftentimes in the Scriptures, there was a prayer and a laying on of hands even, and then the Holy Spirit would come upon an individual. And so uh, maybe you just have a need this morning. Maybe you'd like to be prayed for for healing. I don't want to scare anybody off. You can be healed. You'll be ultimately healed when you go to be with Jesus, but you might be able to be healed. And, and just let's see if that's God's will, and if not, that we would accept what His will is. And so it's available to you if you'd like to receive prayer. Prayer is a powerful thing. It's a, it's a blessed thing. It's one of the privileges we talked about of being a child of God. It's part of being led by the Spirit. And so avail yourself of that today. May God keep and bless you this week as you learn more about His Son, Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. God bless you.